Welcome to the Reology Podcast. My name is Scott Johnson. I'm not a trained theologian, nor do I have degrees in theology or the Bible. I'm just a regular guy who loves and follows God, but wanted to know if there was more to what I was experiencing in the world of church. This podcast is the collection of a journey to dig much deeper in the realm of faith. Reology, in and of itself, is kind of the study of the do-over. It's founded on the philosophy and principle of stopping and thinking, especially when it comes to what I know about God, Jesus, and ultimately what this has to do with me. Now, if you've listened to the last couple of episodes and you have chosen to continue to follow the rabbit hole just to see exactly how deep it does actually go, I am so happy to have you here for sure. But if this is your first encounter, I would strongly encourage you to stop right now and go back to the very first episode and listen to it first. Start there, because I think it'll give you a foundation of the conversation that I'm trying to start. Let me start off with a true story from the Legends of Ministry Past, aka stuff I experienced in full-time ministry. So it was 2003. Some adults that partnered with me in a student ministry encouraged me to help start a modern worship service for adults. As some of these adults were currently helping me lead worship in that Sunday morning uh, worship service, that was actually a student worship service. The other adults had basically experienced that worship service and they came to the conclusion that more adults needed to be exposed to this style of worship. They would say things like, we need to do this in big church and mainly because it was experiential and inspirational by design. Making God happy was our main focus. So we soon found ourselves planning, involving the senior minister, sampling our demographic, or just you know asking people what they thought, and then finally scheduling some time at the next elders meeting to present what we had. Our plan consisted of using the main auditorium We were going to rearrange the chairs in the round. They had had pews years ago and got rid of them and put chairs in there, nice chairs. But they still were in rows, just like they were kind of pews. So we wanted to rearrange that. We took down the felt banners that someone had made that are on the walls. Wanted to get rid of those. We added lighting that we were already using in the student service. And of course, we wanted to use our own equipment as not to tick off the adult worship committee. Don't want to do that. The name of the service would be called Desire, and it would be held on Saturday night because that was the best night according to our sampling. So we took our well-thought-out, prayed-over plans to the next elders' meeting and presented them, and then answered a whole bunch of questions, some even repeatedly. But the big kicker came down to one specific question. These guys, these elders wanted to know, how do we get these people to come back on Sunday morning? They come to this Saturday night worship service. How do, they, how do we get them to come back to Sunday morning? As you can imagine, our group of planners couldn't quite get our heads around this question. The reality of what these guys were saying, the elders of the church, that is, is that they saw Sunday morning as the anointed time to meet. And even though they had two worship services on Sunday morning, the main service was 1045, and that was kind of their official time slot for the anointed time to meet. Everything else to them was just an extra and didn't really count. 
So in one simple question, these guys, these elders of the church, they revealed the purpose, the vision, and the goal for what they thought for the church. This episode is dedicated to this question. What is so holy about having a gathering on Sunday morning? And what's so holy about the elements of the service itself? And when I'm saying holy, I'm using quotes here to indicate the importance that we place on them, not the importance that God places on them. You know, it seems like not only were these elders emphasizing the importance of the Sunday morning worship service, but we've done a pretty darn good job on passing that thought along to others over the last several hundred years. People seem to think that church can only be associated with a Sunday morning worship service and that you can't really be a Christian unless you go. So I thought, let's uh, stop and think here for a second. Let's dig in. Let's find out. Now, just a warning here. This is going to be quite a bit of stuff I'm going to cover. And most of it might be a little shocking to hear, mainly because it is not taught and it goes completely against popular belief. So, let's start with the day, Sunday. The first question we need to ask is, does Jesus or the apostles, do they ever talk about gathering together on Sunday? Or, or even any specific day of the week? So, the answer is kind of like yes and a no. Yes, Sunday, if it was the first day of the week in the New Testament times, which we believe it was, Sunday is the first day of the week, just like it is is here, it is mentioned actually eight times in the New Testament. Now, not the name Sunday itself, but the first day of the week. It's mentioned eight times in the New Testament. Now, six of those times, it's mentioned in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So that wouldn't really refer to a church service, since the church didn't really start until the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2. But it is mentioned twice after that in both Acts 20 and in 1 Corinthians 16. And they're referring to meetings. But these meetings weren't really church services. They were times where the disciples came together. As in Acts 20, the disciples got together to have a meeting, basically, and talk about some things. And they met all day long and they broke bread together. And in the 1 Corinthians 16, Paul's basically saying, hey, here's what we need to do. We need to collect up an offering. So on the first day of the week, I need you guys to bring your offering together. And what they were doing is they were bringing together food and provisions and stuff for the Christians in Jerusalem because of a famine that had happened and they wanted to help out. But other than that, there are no places in the New Testament where Sunday or Sunday morning are mentioned And nowhere in the entire New Testament does anyone say that you have to meet on the first day of the week. Matter of fact, the very early followers were meeting daily, as stated in Acts 2. I mean, they would meet in the temple courts. They would get together in each other's homes. They ate meals together. They prayed together. They shared resources. And that might have been because, you know, this is all very new to them. They were all very very both excited and and also scared a little bit and they needed each other on a daily basis for moral support. So the big question though is is this was Sunday 
set up as the dedicated official day for the church to gather in the New Testament? And the answer is no. There is no scripture stating that you must meet on the first day of the week, Sunday. Now, Sunday probably naturally just became a day of importance simply because that was the day of Jesus' resurrection. Now, we know that there was a conflict between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians when it came to continuing to observe the Jewish laws and practices, you know, like going to the synagogue, observing the feasts, and most specifically here when it comes to like a, 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 a day, a specific day would be the Sabbath, right? The seventh day, the day of the Lord, the day of rest, which would have been, would have been Saturday. You know, these people were Jews first and foremost They become Christians now, and they're thinking to themselves, they're conflicted, you know, do we need to keep doing these things? So are these things really that important now that Jesus has come? And the day of the Lord was one thing that they asked, they wanted to know. But Sunday was never, ever a part of this conflict. And probably mainly because it was not officially designated or mandated as the new Lord's day, taking the place of the Sabbath. It just naturally happened that way. And, you know, what we know of Jesus, you know, he didn't come to create a whole new system of laws and rules to follow. So mandating that you'd have to meet only on one day of the week on a specific day would be kind of a conflict to who he was and what he taught. Now, unfortunately, through the years, we just took what became a habit, you know, a tradition, something that started naturally, and we stamped it as official. Now, a question that I have and something that really bothers me is that, you know, we're kind of uh, picking and choosing here, right? We're dogmatic about other certain practices and not so much others. You know, concerning the early church meeting together, some things were obviously kind of put into official position we're dogmatic about or is the day but some references like let's say for acts chapter 20 was said a while ago they show that the meeting lasted all day long so if we're dogmatic about certain things like the day of the week why aren't we dogmatic about these types of things why aren't church services a whole day long i mean it's in the bible and then some references show that they they met before the sun rose in the day before sunrise we're dogmatic about the day of the week of Sunday. Why aren't we dogmatic about this? Why aren't churches meeting at five o'clock in the morning? Why aren't we observing that? I mean, it's in the Bible. Why take some aspects and see them as law and then others as well, optional? That's a good question. Well, the short answer would be this, is that Jesus never ever established rules about meeting times or days. His intention for his ecclesia was to be a natural organism, a way of living, not centered on a meeting and its specific day or time. And just because it might be mentioned in the New Testament doesn't mean that it should be anointed as Christian law or more importantly, God's will. Now, Sunday did catch on as a natural day of gathering together. And of course, by the time Constantine, our old buddy, came around, to uh, institutionalize Christianity and the church right around 313 BC. Sunday had already kind of become the day that people were typically gathering on, not just because, not because Jesus said anything, you know, not he said he to, to do this or to do that, just because it was a natural draw to it and, of course, tradition. 
It doesn't take an expert in the Bible to quickly realize that our church meetings, you know, our services, they look vastly different from Acts 2 and anything in the New Testament. The early church meetings were, they were so much more personal and they were intimate. They were collective. Everyone participated. They ate meals together and they prayed together, not just for a few minutes. And they were orderly, but they, they weren't structured. They dedicated themselves to each other and to meeting the needs of people around them. And they were also dedicating to, dedicated to making disciples. Each one of them making disciples. It wasn't just the preacher's job to do that. Probably because there was no preacher. In comparison, the modern church service looks drastically, basically, basically the opposite. I mean, there's not much room, you know, today in a modern church service for, for praying together um, or participation and definitely not meals unless it's Wednesday night. The service itself is not, not very intimate and it's not very personal. Most modern church services are around a sermon. I mean, it, you know, it kind of gets top billing and it's, it's, it takes up the biggest time slot. And of course we have singing and we have great bands nowadays and sing and lead singers and great singers and talented people, no doubt, but mainly it's just following the lead of that band or the lead of a song leader. And it's typically only three or four songs. I mean, they create teaching or sermon series, right? That become the number one thing that they do. They meet for hours about it. They spend money on it. They spend time building sets and such because of that series, the sermon, when they market it and they script the whole service out to follow the series. And it's, and it ends up being more of an experience to watch instead of an experience to be a part of or to add to. The modern worship service has been labeled as spiritual entertainment at best. It's something we watch, but really aren't a part of. You know, the skin of the church service or the meeting has changed. It's changed quite a bit in the last several hundred years, for sure. But the elements really have not. You know, the basics have been around since the early 1500s when the Great Reformation took place. When Bibles started being printed in local languages, as you can imagine, this started changing things. And then it eventually started changing the service as well, the church service. Since most people were uneducated in the Bible, you know, because the Church of Rome would not allow that, people like Martin Luther made it his personal mission to teach because these people had been, you know, basically taking the priest's word for it for hundreds of years. And so they needed to be educated about what the Bible really did say and what it didn't say. And I get it. And upon starting a new Protestant church, you know, the new churches, he and others made big changes. And most of those affected the center of the Christian's world, the church service. The material things of the church service were changed, like the layout of the meeting area, you know, the sanctuary. Catholic churches were centered on the Eucharist primarily. So up to that time, the Eucharist was the, was the big deal. The Lord's Supper, you know, communion. That was one of the main jobs of the priest. Matter of fact, only the priest could facilitate and serve the Eucharist. It was, it was the main thing. The communion table was at the very center of the room or the center of the stage. And the seats were arranged to face each other. You know, the left side of the room faced the right side of the room. You can go on, on Google and search 
pictures of the famous Westminster Abbey to kind of see what I'm talking about. Protestant meeting areas, though, would have teaching replace communion as the focal point. And so the communion table would give way to a podium or pulpit and the, and the preacher. The seats would then be rotated to face the stage instead of each other. Why would we see each other? We need to see this, the preacher. That's who we're supposed to be listening to and paying attention to. So that little bit of intimacy that the Catholic church meeting room had would be replaced with the need for learning. And hence, it became even colder and more impersonal. It was about watching and listening. The minister took the place of the priest, but like the priest, he was the only one who had the authority to facilitate the meeting. Communion was intended to be an intimate experience, although completely different from the early Christians eating meals together. And even though communion was still a part of the church service, its importance was replaced with the sermon. So another aspect of it becoming colder and less personal. You know, Luther and the other reformers, they, they really had great intentions. There's no doubt about that. They wanted to reform a lot of things. Unfortunately, they just didn't go deep enough. They wanted to reform the, the how. They just didn't really want to reform the why and, and think, why do we meet together weekly? Why are we doing certain things we're doing? And since that time, not a lot has changed. In fact, the tradition has grown stronger and more deeper rooted. The skin has changed, but the foundation, not so much. You know, when we hear the word church, these images of a building and pews, a choir, a band, a preacher, a sermon, they all come to mind. These images are what we associate the word church with the same word that is also attached to the meetings of the early Christians. The exact same English word that we use, church. But quite honestly, they're two very different things. And that's why I started this podcast. I don't think the words are the same. I don't. One being church and the other being ecclesia. What we've been experiencing on Sunday mornings for the last almost 500 years have pretty much looked the same. Only smaller details, the skin has what has been what's been changed. The basics have stayed the same, mainly those being sermons, congregational singing, offerings, communion depending on your denomination, and the importance of having and doing those things every Sunday morning. So Sunday morning has become something completely unrecognizable to the early Christians and and what they were a part of every day of their lives. Well, let's take a second to look at some of these elements that haven't changed much. The first one I would look at would be communion. So most people know this element by the two distinct pieces, bread and wine, or juice. This tradition, uh, also known as the Lord's Supper and the Eucharist, of eating a piece of unleavened bread and drinking a cup of wine or a little thing of juice or whatever, was somehow started based off of the Last Supper found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus celebrates the Passover with a meal with his disciples in an upper room of a house. And during the meal, with all this food, Jesus takes the loaf of unleavened bread. He passes it around and invites them to take a piece and, and eat it. And he says, this is 
a symbol. It represents my body. And so he does the same thing with the cup of with with a cup of wine, right? He passes around to so take a drink. This symbolizes and represents my blood. Singling out these two pieces of the meal somehow turns into a religious ritual that we now partake in. And as I stated earlier, the Christians in Acts and and throughout the New Testament are seen meeting in homes together as the as the church, the ecclesia and are partaking in a whole meal. For instance, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, Paul writes this letter to the Christians in Corinth, and here specifically is pointing out an issue with people abusing the Lord's Supper, communion. He says that some were getting drunk, some were getting full, and others going without. I mean, they weren't getting drunk on just a cup of wine or a small taste of a cup of wine or a little cup of juice or whatever. They weren't getting drunk off that. And they weren't getting full off just some bread if it was just a you know religious ritual they were involved in. No, they were they were having a full meal here. One of the biggest issues that Paul actually had with these guys was they were that they were having their own private meals during the big meal. And their problem was that they weren't eating together as one. They were eating and drinking selfishly, getting drunk and getting full and forgetting about others for, you know, the larger group, the bigger picture. So here communion or the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, it wasn't a ritual of eating a cracker and drinking a small cup of wine or juice. It was a meal. My thoughts of Jesus using the Passover as a teaching moment wasn't to create a new religious ritual like something in the temple. It was a way to go deeper and use one of the culture's most important meals and take two of the most basic elements, food and drink, to act as a reminder of who he was and what he came to do. Jesus is literally asking us, the next time you eat something as basic as bread, which they did every day, think of my body, my life, what I did. And hey, the next time you drink something as basic as wine which basically was the equivalent of us drinking sweet tea, which they did every day. Think of my blood that was used as a sacrifice for you to have a future. He wasn't telling this to, wasn't telling them to do this once a week or once a month. He was saying to remember him when you happen to eat and drink these things, which would be every day. I'm having a real hard time believing that Jesus was just setting up a new ritual to follow without question, without thought, which is primarily how we do communion today and how we see it. I think the bigger and deeper idea of communion is to stop and think the next time I eat a Chick-fil-A sandwich and to stop and think the next time I drink a Dr. Pepper. So let's talk about prayer. You know, when the early Christians got together to pray, the result was powerful. I mean, shoot, the earth actually literally shook in Acts chapter two, these people's lives. You know, they were, they were being threatened, a brand new experience for them. Never, their lives have never been threatened before. And they got together out of fear and needing more support from each other. And they needed the strength of the Lord. And they prayed and the ground actually shook. And then the Holy Spirit came upon them in power and ta-da, the ecclesia was born. Today, prayer in the church meeting is defined as one person praying and everyone else closing their eyes and listening. 
Some pastor-led prayers are even scripted and written out in advance and are read during the prayer time. Most prayer time is based upon prayer requests, and it starts to feel more like a list being checked off, more than it does a time of power and strength. I mean, prayer time today isn't a two-way conversation to be involved in. It's more of just an element that needs to be added into the service somewhere. Christian leaders, they do a horrible job teaching not only the importance of prayer, but how to do it. Not to beat on the elders of the church that I mentioned earlier, but, you know, while I was there on staff, I read this book by a guy named Jim Simbola called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Jim wrote on his experience with the Lord through a dedicated prayer meeting that they started. He experienced what only God can do, something I think we all seek. I mean, I do, and I was at the time. And so I approached the senior minister, the lead minister, about an idea of starting a prayer meeting for our church. This would be a time to engage God about leading us down the right road, that he wanted us to travel, and to fill us with his desires instead of our own. So the senior minister, he loved the idea, and we went and told the elders. They thought it was fine, and so we started it. Those who showed up, as you probably could imagine, would definitely fit the bill of the typical prayer warrior role. You know, those meek enough to go to their knees on a daily basis. The only thing that was missing, oddly enough, were the elders. A few of them came once or twice, but the mass majority of the time, they just weren't there. And that's kind of funny seeing as how an elder's main role is prayer. Symbola wrote this in this book, and I love this, and I've, 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 said this to several people, quoted it several times. He says, you can tell how popular the church is by who shows up on Sunday morning. And you can tell how popular the pastor is by who shows up on Sunday night. And you can tell how popular Jesus is by who shows up to a prayer service. Too, too true. Prayer in today's church service is a very weak shell of what it was in the early meetings of the ecclesia. It's basically just one of the rituals that must be added to the program somewhere. And it's primarily used as a transition tool from one element like singing to the next element like the sermon. Speaking of singing, let's talk about worship. You know, I've been involved with multiple new churches since 2004, 13 years. One major thing that I have, uh, that they all have to seem in common is the style of of worship, the song service. Um, That thing that they're all trying to achieve. I've been in bigger church services where a full professional band, a light show, motion background screens, and other performance tools are used to bring people closer to the throne of God in worship. And most do a pretty good job production-wise. But I've also gone to very small church services of around 20 to 30 people. And the funny thing is, is the same desire is there. To have a band and performers and lights and motion background screens and yada, 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 all trying to create that same environment, but of course failing. Instead of pulling off a good production, it, it, it kind of looks weird and, and feels strange. The sense of trying to lead people to worship at the feet of God it gets lost in this desire for a good production. Now, I've gone to several 
conferences where pastors and their staffs are a part of a high production worship service. And they're not really paying attention, you know, to giving of themselves in worship, but they're more trying to figure out, you know, what kind of lights are being used and what, what's the brand of the projector they have and how are their loudspeakers laid out and where can we get motion graphics like the ones used, you know, all the aspects of the room that help set the mood and the atmosphere. There is a pressure for most new church planters and pastors today to have a high production worship service, even though they might only have 20 to 30 people show up. There's this crazy underlying belief that these tools, the stuff, are detrimental in helping bring new people in the doors. And the highest amount of importance should be placed upon them. They end up really missing the mark, though. Now, let's not leave out the more traditional service. We're going to talk about that as well. Unfortunately, it's not very hard to see the faults in this type of service. You know, where they're still using the same hymns, the same way, in the same situations. You know, these songs are written by very passionate followers of Jesus through tough and difficult situations. And they're actually very beautiful. But they're, they're led in a very mundane way without passion or emotion. It's almost closer to reciting the words instead of singing them. We fail to teach the meaning behind most songs, and we fail to make them real to people, singing them. And that's probably because they aren't really meant for that in our church services. We aren't really trying to lead people to a selfless worship of God, but more like getting them ready for the sermon. Most of the time, the songs selected for the service are based off of the theme of the sermon or the series. I mean, I've been a part of these, you know, creative meetings where we see that the sermon is centered around, you know, this month is centered around love. And so, well, now we got to find some songs that have the word love in them or the love in the title, or at least talk about love somehow. The fact is most Sunday morning church services are based on entertaining people instead of inspiring them by engaging in a selfless worship to God. Now let's talk about the sermon. A funny-sounding word, sermon. Our English version came from the French version, which came from the Latin, and its literal meaning is stringing words together, more commonly known as discourse, which means a conversation or speech. I'm not quite sure why we just don't call it that. Why do we have to call it sermon? Probably because the tradition said, oh, that's that's what the, the word Jesus used, so we need to use it. Anyway, sermon, the sermon, and preaching that we see in the New Testament are traditionally seen as the same thing. That's what we think. They're the same thing. Sermon and preaching are the same. Thing is, they're not. Mark 16, another account of the Great Commission. Basically, Jesus telling his disciples what they should be doing with their lives once he ascends back into heaven after he's resurrected. And here's the famous phrase that we use and use and use, and we completely get it wrong a lot of times. Preach the gospel. We think preach the gospel is what the pastor does on Sunday morning through the sermon. Well, the Greek word for preach is caruso. Its meaning is to proclaim, to announce a message publicly. publicly. So to proclaim or to announce a message publicly. And the word gospel, preach the gospel. A gospel means good news. We've talked about that before. Neither of these words, though, n- neither one of them were made up by Jesus. They were used on a daily basis by society. But here, Jesus is literally saying, 
I want you to make my story public. Don't keep this information for yourself. Let everybody know. And that's what they did. The word sermon is more about the style of speaking than it is the action of doing it. The sermon came about in late the second century. Clement of Alexandria stated the fact that sermons did so little to change Christians, yet despite its recognized failure, it became a standard practice by the fourth century. Since Constantine, our good buddy, created organized Christianity, he also institutionalized it with meeting houses, churches, and overseers, bishops, or preachers, giving eloquent speeches or sermons. Since Rome stood on the foundation of ancient Greece, the Greek culture obviously played a major influence on things. In the 5th century BC, before Christ, Greece was fascinated with rhetoric, and rhetoric is the art of persuasive speaking. This was the mainstream of entertainment for the day, and it became the foundation of culture for centuries to come. So when Christianity was organized by Constantine, of course, he inserted the Greek influence of rhetoric into the church meeting, the sermon. And so eloquent speakers like John Chrysostom, and Chrysostom means golden mouth, and, and speakers like Augustine, who was a former professor of rhetoric, these guys became superstars and they would pave the way of eloquent sermons and they would pave the way for eloquent speakers of sermons. I mean, John Chrysostom was such a superhero that one time while he was speaking, people kept interrupting him with spontaneous applause. And he ended up stopping and telling them, hey, that, you know, applause was unfitting in God's house. And so they applauded that. This fascination of rhetoric brought an unbiblical focus and an unbiblical importance on the sermon and on educating preachers or speakers to master the craft of eloquent speech. The sermon was born. The educated, ordained preacher was born, and the rest is history. Wayne Oakes, who is a biblical scholar, he put it this way, he said, the original proclamation of the Christian message was a two-way conversation. But when the oratorical schools of the Western world laid hold of the Christian message, they made Christian preaching something vastly different. Oratory tended to take the place of conversation. The greatness of the orator took the place of the astounding event of Jesus Christ. And the dialogue between speaker and listener faded into a monologue. Basically, spirit-inspired teaching, open sharing, and collective participation was replaced by professional and qualified speakers preaching their eloquent sermons. They became the center of Christianity. Now, it wasn't the job of everyone to get this message out anymore. It was only the job of the preacher. Our job was just to come and listen. Preaching the gospel was meant to be an expression of a spirit-filled life. It ended up as one person standing on the stage with an eloquent speech. 
And lastly here, baptism. Let's talk about baptism. Now, for some reason, baptism has become the center of controversy and maybe because preachers for the last couple of centuries have used it as the center of a person's salvation experience, declaring that it alone is what saves you. Well, it doesn't. It's like saying that prayer saves you. Well, I mean, it kind of does and it doesn't, just not alone. The same thing with baptism. You know, it's a part of a big picture of many things that brings you to a position of an obedient follower of Jesus. Alone, it's just another ritual. But together with a lifestyle of daily conscious following and everything that comes along with that, it brings a person to a position ready to follow. It brings a person to a position of working out their salvation daily. Baptism in the context of the church service, though, has been an element that can only be administered seemingly by the professional, the pastor, the minister. It's usually the, the, the crescendo, basically, of the sermon. You know, it kind of feels like, well, if you agree with the sermon, you need to come forward and be baptized. It seems way more mechanical than it did in the early ecclesia. I mean, in the accounts of Acts, many people were influenced by what they see in the lives of these followers of Jesus, and they experience a transformation. And then they follow up that transformation with a very intimate baptism that is inspirational and holy. Even though some modern church services, even though they've taken the baptism out of every service, they typically create a specific Sunday just for it, a day when everyone who's wanting to be baptized can come and and do so. It still seems, though, that baptisms can only happen on Sunday morning and only by a qualified professional. I look at one simple account in Acts 8 where the Lord leads Philip, a disciple, right? to meet an Ethiopian man to whom he shares the story of Jesus. The Ethiopian man asks Philip, because he's inspired, what would keep him from being baptized right right here on the spot? He says, hey, look over there, there's some water over there. And Philip says, well, absolutely nothing. Let's do this. And so they did. Baptism, it's a result of obedience. And it's something that we all are commanded to be doing, as in Matthew 28. It's a part of making disciples. It should be something that we are all a part of on a daily basis, not not some element of a church service. I mean, some people have told me, well, it's, you know, it's nice to see baptisms on Sunday morning. It's nice that it's something that can be shared with the whole church. But the problem is, this isn't the whole church. The church isn't a service. You know, it's the ecclesia of God. It's a living organism that ebbs and flows on a daily basis. Baptisms and baptism itself isn't something that should be saved for Sunday. It's something that we should be we should be doing and something that should be happening on a daily basis as a byproduct of the functionality of the ecclesia. It should occur here and there and anywhere at any time by anyone simply because God's family are doing their jobs. Now, I you know, I say all of this to come down to one point. And I, I want you to really listen to this point and hear, hear this specifically. From everything that I've just said, hear this specifically. I really don't care if people want to get together on Sunday morning and have a service last an hour with singing, preaching, 
you know, a, a sermon by a preacher, communion, baptisms, all of this in a building with the steeple or all of this happening with a band and high production in a movie theater or whatever. It, it honestly, it does not bother me one bit. That is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I've got a lot of minister friends who might unfriend me on Facebook if I don't make this point very clear. My problem isn't with the stuff. My problem is when we start teaching people that this is the way it's done. That all of this is church. And that church, the word, is the same as ecclesia we see in the New Testament. I've got a real problem with the notion that if you do not go and do these things on Sunday morning, you are a lesser Christian. And quite honestly, most people don't think you're a Christian at all. They think you're just lame and you're lazy. Mainly because that idea, that mindset comes from a very, very uneducated position. You are just repeating what you've heard other people say because it got passed on from generation to generation and generation and generation. A tradition, not a truth. I've made it very clear here that all these elements and even Sunday morning itself are not in and of themselves holy. They are not mandated in the Bible. Jesus never gave us specifics on these things. The disciples never made a blueprint on how to do church, probably because they knew that what Jesus came to build, this ecclesia, it wasn't something to do with rituals or elements or traditions. Jesus actually came to tear those things down. What he came to build instead were people. People who loved others unconditionally. People who were genuinely concerned about those around them. People who would go out of their way to help those in need. And people who would see this as what they were put on this earth to do. The true ecclesia of Jesus would be resilient about their mission, making disciples. And they would go to the ends of the earth and the extremes of life or death to take the story of God's love through the life of Jesus public. That is what we should be teaching as non-negotiables. That is what we should be teaching as holy. Sunday is not a holy day. Every day is. These elements that have become official tradition, they are not holy. We are. We are holy. And what we do is holy simply because the house of the Lord, it's not a building. It's in us. The ecclesia, it's not a building. And it's not a service. It's a people. It's us. Well, I'd like to encourage you to be willing to rethink research and rediscover the mysteries of God, the life of Jesus, and the purpose of the ecclesia. But just remember, all of that starts with a willing spirit to stop and think. 
If you spend any time learning about this Jesus and any of the four books dedicated to his life in the Bible, you're going to quickly see that his message revolved around this very same mindset. Stop and think. Thanks for your time today. I will be back soon with a new episode discussing the truths of Christianity that you may never have known before. They may sound crazy, but true.